Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Initially, when, when I came to college, I was a computer science major. I switched to philosophy and psychology just so that I could understand why am I not happy? And more importantly, how can I become happier? And um, you know, I, I studied that also, I went back to, to graduate school and continued to explore what to me was the most important question, you know, the question of happiness. That was Tal Ben Shahar on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're so happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psychology Off the Clock. They offer continuing education for promoting lasting change with evidence-based training, and they're the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Some of their ongoing, on-demand, anytime classes include ACT Immersion with Steve Hayes, ACT in Practice, and also the DNA V model, which is with Louise Hayes, who works with adolescents and is fantastic. Yes, and we have big news. We, Diana and Debbie here, are offering a Praxis training. It's a two-hour workshop on Wednesday, April 28th, and you can sign up 
Best of all, it's free and anyone can join. It's not limited to therapists. And what we're going to do is talk about some of the concepts from our book that we have coming out in May and offer you some practices that you can use from acceptance and commitment therapy to thrive in your own life. So we're really excited to be offering that. You should check it out and we hope you can join us. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com to get a promotion code on live events through Praxis. This is Yael here with Debbie to introduce an episode with happiness guru Tal Ben-Shahar. And I got connected to Tal through Debbie, who, who knew him from a past life. Yeah, it was really fun for me to listen to this because we were we're old friends. I went to graduate school with Tal, and we were in the same cohort in grad school in the psychology department at Harvard. So listening to this really brought back a lot of fond memories. So it was, it was really great to have him on. Yeah. Debbie, I think you told me that you sort of had maybe lost track of him and then saw him go on the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Oh, there's Tall. (laughs) Yes. My jaw dropped. I was like, what? I knew he had a book out, but when I saw him on the Daily Show just randomly, I was like, oh my gosh, he's made it big. He's on the Daily Show, you know, which to me is like as big as it comes. as big as it gets. (laughs) Yeah. Well, happiness is one of these topics that I think we're always kind of talking about, but we often don't talk directly about. So it felt very important to me to have an episode where we really explored what happiness means, how psychology researchers think about happiness. So we can think about happiness in terms of pleasure. So things that feel good, emotions that feel good, you know, the experiences that we have of like eating something delicious or buying something new, those sort of feelings of pleasure and gratification. But another way that positive psychology researchers define happiness is meaning, of doing something that's meaningful to you. So parenting is very meaningful, but it doesn't necessarily feel pleasurable all the time. But it is another form of happiness, you know, this sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. And when we think about both the pleasure and the meaning and, and happy lives, it's really the balance between the two. And the wonderful thing about Tal's work is that he offers a whole host of practices that people can use to build both meaning and pleasure and really to be thinking about the balance between the two. So I thought Debbie and I could share some of our happiness hacks some practices that we use to build happiness in our busy lives. You know, when you asked me this question, I think what I realized, Yael, is that I really have a high level of the meaningful kind of happiness in my life right now. You know, I think my work is feeling really meaningful lately and, you know, relationships, including being a parent and that kind of thing. And honestly, with the pandemic and I've been very busy, I have, I feel like I'm a little bit lower on the pleasure kind of happiness. And actually this episode and this conversation is making me realize that I'm not carving that out enough. I I actually save it up. Like, you know, we went to a cabin up in the mountains several weeks ago, just to have a, you know, a rare pandemic change of scene. And that felt really great. But in terms of day to day, I don't think I'm really carving out very much of that right now. So I'm going to work on that. But, but meaning wise, I do feel like my daily life has a lot of meaning. How about you? Do you have, maybe you can help me. What are you doing? (laughs) Oh, I've been very intentional about this because the pandemic has been so hard and I can feel myself get really depleted. And in order to counteract that depletion, I've been very intentional because I, I become not the kind of parent that I want to be, not the partner that I want to be, and not the therapist that I want to be when I feel that depleted. So the kinds of things that I do are 
Um, I work out regularly. I wake up early to go for runs. And when I'm on my run, I either listen to music that I really like or an audiobook that I really enjoy. And then to really savor meaningful experiences. One of the practices that I've been pretty diligent about is when I'm reading stories with my youngest, my four-year-old at night, we do um, breaths of love and he gets to pick how many. So it varies between three and 10. (laughs) And we do breaths of love where we just sit quietly and breathe together and feel the connection between the two of us. And it's one of the moments that I most look forward to in my day. So those are the kinds of things that I do. Now that you mentioned it, I'm reading Harry Potter with my youngest kiddo, and we've been on this massive Star Wars kick, which I love. And so there are, maybe I'm selling myself short here, because those moments really are fun and special. And it's nice because you're actually focused on on something. You're not trying to multitask, trying to sneak in a little work. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. And actually, that's one of the things that I've realized um, as I've gotten really deep into the happiness literature is that sometimes it's really about just paying attention to what we're already doing, slowing down enough to savor the moments of, of pleasure and of meaning because they're, they tend to be all around us. We're just preoccupied and our minds are wandering everywhere. So it's sometimes really just about recognizing where we are and being more present within it. I think that's so true. We talk about making room for the full range of human emotions. And sometimes when we say that, I think we're talking about the less pleasant emotions, but that can also mean savoring the the positive, pleasant ones when they come along. Sometimes they're few and far between, but if we can savor them and enjoy them and make more room for them, that's great. Yeah. And before we get right into Tal's wisdom, we just want to let you all know that Psychologist Off the Clock is doing another book giveaway, this one for Tal's book called Choose the Life You Want, The Mindful Way to Happiness. So head over to our Instagram account for details on how to enter our drawing for a free copy of this book. I'm here with Tal Ben-Shahara, a teacher and writer whose work bridges Eastern and Western traditions, ancient wisdom, and modern technology, science, and art. Tal created the most popular course at Harvard on the topic of positive psychology, and he's written several best-selling books, including Happier. Tal co-founded Potential Life, a company providing leadership programs steeped in the science of behavioral change and the Happiness Studies Academy. He is a certified yoga instructor, and most importantly, of all his very many accolades, he's a former classmate of our co-host, Debbie Sorensen. So welcome, Tal. I'm so honored to have you on the show. Great to be here, Yael. So you have done an amazing job of bringing what has been done in positive psychology out into the non-academic world. And I wanted to take advantage of your ability to translate a lot of those academic findings here. So to start off with, we mostly think of psychology as a field that attempts to reduce the negative impact of mental health problems like depression, anxiety, psychosis, and, and damaging life experiences like painful relationships. But there's this newer discipline in psychology that you've been instrumental in sharing, So I'm hoping that you can start us off by explaining how do psychologists define what happiness is? Yeah, so, you know, there there are many definitions uh, to happiness. And uh, in many ways, people have given up on trying to define it. And they say, well, it's a little bit like beauty. You know it when you see it. Um, But um, I think it is important to define happiness because uh, when we define it, we know what what we're pursuing, which of course increases the likelihood of uh, of attaining it. So my definition of happiness comprises five elements. The five elements are spiritual well-being, 
physical well-being, intellectual well-being, relational, and finally emotional well-being. These five elements also uh, put together, they spell the acronym SPIRE, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. Now, each one of them is important. And the, um, the, the more important thing is that they are tied together as a system, meaning we don't need to do it all. We can enter the system through any or all of these five elements. In other words, I can work on my spiritual well-being and that will have an impact on my happiness in general. I can work on my intellectual or relational well-being and that will have a holistic impact. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways to create more happiness. One thing that I think people often get caught on, though, is that happiness, we often define it in Western societies as like feelings of pleasure. And as you're sort of saying this, this, you know, spiritual, physical, emotional, relational, um, that isn't necessarily like the feel good, like the feel good that you get when you buy something new or eat something delicious. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the difference between the kinds of well-being that you're referring to and experiences of pleasure. Are they the same? Are they different? And, and why does that difference matter if there is a difference? So pleasure certainly is an important part of a, of a happy life, but it's only a part. Um, specifically, you know, when, when I talk about the five spire elements, emotional well-being is, is a part of it. But even within emotional well-being, uh, when we're talking about pleasurable emotions like uh, joy and fun and excitement, they, they, they are only part of it because uh, under emotional well-being, it's also important to learn to deal with painful emotions. You know, uh, we're, we're, we all uh, experience uh, emotions of anxiety or sadness or, or anger uh, or, or, um, or envy or, um, or uh, frustration. These are natural human emotions and um, discarding them is um, is always to our detriment because what happens when I reject painful emotions, paradoxically, they intensify. And when I embrace them as part of life, as part of a happy life, when I embrace these painful emotions, they don't overstay their welcome. You know, yeah, there's a beautiful uh, poem written uh, 800 years ago or so by Rumi called The Guest House. And uh, in the guest house, Rumi talks about our need to embrace, accept, uh, invite in any and all emotions. Again, the pleasurable as well as the painful ones. And when we do so, that's when we learn peaceful coexistence uh, rather than um, um, going into a, a conflict with these emotions. And then they ultimately uh, intensify, grow stronger. Right. I mean, and there's something so paradoxical about human emotional life. And I think that you just captured it well, and that Rumi poem captures it so beautifully that when we make room for all the experiences, we can actually have more of the good ones, even though it feels kind of counterintuitive on the face of it that, you know, we think if we just reduce negative mood, we'll feel happier. But what you're saying is actually the opposite is true. Yeah. The, the reason for that is that there are, um, the, there's one uh, emotional pipeline. All our emotions flow through that one pipeline. If I reject painful emotions, in other words, if I block 
um, painful emotions from flowing freely through that pipeline, I'm inadvertently also blocking the pleasurable emotions. So if I'm blocking envy, I'm also preventing myself from experiencing love. If I, if I stop anxiety, then uh, excitement is going to be shortchanged. If uh, I don't allow myself to experience sorrow, then joy um, isn't going to enter that pipeline either. In the words of uh, Golda Meir, who was Israeli prime minister back in the 1970s, those who cannot weep with their whole heart cannot laugh either. Two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And what I have loved about your writing is that you share a lot of your personal experiences in a very authentic way in terms of how it brought you to some of these realizations. Like you're, you talk about yourself as a young man who is incredibly ambitious and yep. that this kind of pursuit of excellence and sort of really being out there and, and always perfecting your skill set was this you know, in a way, a pursuit of happiness, and yet you couldn't quite access it. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you learned from your life experiences and how that really got you into this deep dive into what it means to be happy and some of the counterintuitive findings that really we, we really experience as human beings. Yeah, you know, like most people uh, raised in the West, um, the mental schema, the belief that I internalized was that the path to happiness um, has to go through success. Uh, so if you, uh, if you succeed, whether it's uh, in school initially, uh, college, in, uh, at work, um, uh, professionally, then, then you'll be, be happy. And um, in many ways, I checked the right boxes. You know, I did what was, uh, what was required of me. You know, I did well in school. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was an athlete. Um, I got a good job. You know, I made a nice income. You know, I, I checked all the boxes uh, and yet I was uh, extremely unhappy. And um, I must say it didn't, it didn't make sense to me at the time. And, um, you know, I, I first thought about it when I won my first, uh, uh, Israeli national championship. I was, uh, you know, I was 16. Um, I was the youngest uh, ever to win it. And I thought, okay, now, now, now I'm all set. I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. And I, w- I was happy for about four hours. And, you know, when I got into Harvard, I thought, okay, now I'll be happy. And yeah, I was happy for, you know, longer than four hours, but not much longer than that. Um, and then I got a great summer internship and I was doing well academically. And, and again, these were all short-lived spikes in my well-being. And at some point I decided that I have to find out, you know, what, what's going on here. And uh, initially when, when I came to college, I was a computer science major. I switched to philosophy and psychology uh, just so that I could understand w- why am I not happy? And more importantly, how can I become happier? And um, you know, I, I studied that. Also, went back to to graduate school, um, and um, and continued to explore what, what what to me was the most important question. You know, the question of happiness. Yeah, yeah. Was there like a moment of insight, or was it more that you had small lessons along the way? So there was a both. pivotal moment. Yeah. So so yes. Um, and more. In other words, there were pivotal moments, but but more importantly, it was a gradual change. The, one of the pivotal moments were when I realized the the real relationship 
between success and happiness, that while success doesn't lead to happiness, uh, more happiness does lead to more success. In other words, we increase levels of well-being, we become more creative, more productive, more engaged, our relationships improve, we become physically healthier. So I realized that I and, and millions, if not billions of people around the world have the uh, success-happiness uh, causal relationship upside down. Success doesn't lead to happiness. Happiness leads to success. So there, there, there was an aha moment. Another aha moment was around painful emotions because um, for a long time, I thought that, okay, once I become a real expert in the science of happiness, then I will be exempt from these painful emotions. And, and I realized that um, there are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions. They are the psychopaths and the dead. So, um, so you know, you don't want to be either of those. Emotions. I don't want to be exactly, and you know, and I and I and I make that very clear to my students when 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 they communicate explicitly or implicitly that they hope to uh, to, to to get past all these uh, um, painful emotions, unpleasant emotions. Yeah. Um, so, so these were some of the uh, aha moments, but generally the um, the trajectory of becoming happier is uh, is is gradual. Yeah, there are ups and downs uh, throughout life. That's inevitable. But the question is always, how can I raise my base level, my average level of well being, and how can I do it by one percent, three percent, and and do it consistently over time. You know, yeah, that relates to a, a question that many people ask me. And they say, okay, now 30 years hence, you know, since you started on this journey, are you finally happy? Because they know that I started it, you know, because, because of my unhappiness. And my answer to that is, I don't know. Why? Because uh, I don't think there is a point before which one is unhappy, after which one is happy. It's not a binary zero one. Rather, it's a continuum. Yes, I'm a lot happier than I was 30 years ago. Uh, I certainly hope that five years from now I'll be happier than I am today. It's a lifelong journey and a, and a journey that ends when life ends. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me too, um, and when I was reading uh, your books, it made me think of a conversation that I had with KJ Antonio, who wrote a book, How to Be a Happier Parent. And she says, when people ask me, how do I be a happy parent? She says, not happy, it's happier and your book is very aptly titled Happy Year, right? It's not happy because we don't get to be happy all the time because as you started off saying, the emotions, we, we have to experience the gamut of them, right? In a life, we feel all of them. And if we allow ourselves to feel all of them, we'll actually have more access to the happiness too. And I think that's such an important message. Yeah, yes, it's, it's a very important message and it's an important message for, uh, for everyone, including positive psychologists yeah. uh, or including psychologists in general. You know, it, it reminds me, um, um, you know, so I teach a certificate program, which is a, a year long. And uh, in one of the programs uh, uh, towards the end of the year, we had a retreat. And during the retreat, the, uh, one of the participants you know, put her uh, hand up, you know, we had a, a Q&A session. And, um, and uh, you know, there were about two, 200 plus people in the room and she was sitting right in front. And, and, and I said to her, yes. And she said, uh, you know, Tal, sometimes I feel like uh, I'm, I'm a fraud. Now, just a bit of background about her. She's a very, very successful clinical psychologist. 
um, you know, numerous patients. You know, she's uh, studied the field. She's written about it. Um, um, and she, she, she tells me that, or she tells the, the, the audience, you know, you know, 200 plus of us, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm a fraud and, uh, you know, the imposter syndrome. And, and, and I say to her, why? And she said, because, you know, I talk to them about happiness. You know, I'm a, I have a PhD in psychology. I'm becoming more and more of an expert in positive psychology, the science of happiness. And yet, and yet sometimes I go into these dark places and what she means is that, you know, she, 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 she becomes, um, you know, frustrated or depressed or anxious. You know, she goes into these dark places and, you know, how can I talk to them about, you know, happiness and, and a better life when I go into these dark places, she asks, and, and she's crying. And I ask her at that point, I say to her, do you mind if I ask a question to the rest of the group? And she said, sure. And, and I ask them the following, I say to them, Put your hand up if over the last three months you have been to one of those dark places. And then I ask her to turn around and she turns around and she, you know, she begins to, to smile because every hand was up. And she looks back at me and I say, we all go through it. I do too. And, you know, my hand is up as well. Yeah. And then I look into her eyes and suddenly I notice something. I noticed something um, and I say to her, you don't believe me, do you? <laughs> Meaning you don't believe me that I too go to these dark places. Yeah. And she says, no, I don't. And the thing, this was a real aha moment for me because I realized then that, you know, I talk about the permission to be human all the time. I talk about it in, you know, in my first class of a year long course because it's so important and so yeah. fundamental. And yet... She and I'm sure many others don't believe me. Why? Because they think, okay, I'm experiencing now. It's difficult. It's unpleasant. But when I become a real expert, you know, like my teacher or like others. Yeah, the guy who wrote the best-selling book. Um, then I won't feel that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's not true. And I told her, look, I promise you I'm not a psychopath and I'm alive. Look, I'm moving here. Um. And yet, and yet, it's very difficult for people, and, and myself too, to truly accept, truly embrace painful emotions as, as natural, just as we do accept and embrace the law of gravity. Both are part of nature, indispensable, real, and they're here to stay. We've had a number of guests on the show that we've been inspired by and that are offering you, our listeners, discounts on their programs. If you go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, you'll be able to find coupon codes for the programs of Dr. Judson Brewer, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Jen Lumenlen. So go check it out at offtheclockpsych.com and start learning today. So let me ask you a question as a father. I know that you have three kids. How do you teach your kids as as an expert, but also as a parent to embrace and, and make room for those uncomfortable emotions, because as much as we're wired to have them, we're also wired to kind of not want to keep them. Right. Well, first and foremost, by example, and let me give you an example. So, um, you know, we're going through this um, very difficult period in, I, I'd say, in human history, and you know we're we're living it when you know with the uh, lockdown and, and 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 stress and anxiety probably at an all-time high depression levels on the rise 
Um, you know, and we're, we're at home and we, you know, the kids are not going to school. So we're together all the time. And uh, just a few days ago, we had, um, we decided to, you know, have uh, dinner together and after dinner to watch a, a movie, The Hobbit, together. And, you know, everyone was looking forward to it and it comes 7 p.m. And I'm, I'm really just feeling down, uh, not, not feeling well. I'm feeling frustration and, and anxious and, 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 and sad. So I tell my kids, look, daddy's not doing well. I'm, j- I'm just really feeling down and I need some uh, alone time. I need some time to recover. Um, and uh, I went up to my room and, you know, wrote in my journal, shed a few tears, uh, went into bed with, um, with a book, fell asleep earlier than I usually do and woke up the next morning, not feeling great, but, but feeling better. And, um, there were two important things for me in that experience. One is I gave myself the permission to be human, uh, you know, express my emotions, whether to them, whether in writing, um, whether through tears. And second, no less important, I also told them that it's that I'm giving myself the permission to be human and giving them the permission to be human because, you know, they know what I do. You know, they know that, you know, that, that I do happiness. Uh, and yet I'm also feeling down at times and that it's, it, as uh, Demi Lovato said in one of her songs, that it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a great book on grief called It's Okay Not to Be Okay that I, I also really love. So I, I love that idea that it is okay not mm. to be okay. And the more we can, again, make room for it, the more it kind of comes, but it also is allowed to pass more easily. It doesn't quite get as sticky. One, one thing that you write a lot about that I also want to dive into is this idea of choice, that we have a choice in how we respond to the uncomfortable things. And I think you gave a really nice example of like, you know, part of the choice is to make room for it, to treat it as normal and human and not to vilify ourselves or pathologize ourselves. But I'm curious what you would say to the many people <laughs> that say, you know, there are so many things I don't have a choice over that are just beyond difficult and that, you know, where I don't really have that much flexibility in how I respond to things like health issues. I mean, things like the pandemic are, are is a good example, but also challenges that we have with our kids, our work hours, how our boss treats us. So how do you explain to folks that um, really sort of push against this idea that there is choice in how we respond because their manifest experience is that there really isn't a lot of option in what to do with the difficult things we are confronted with in life. Yeah. You know, um, here y'all, I have to go to the, uh, um, to the AA, uh, creed to the serenity prayer, which is, uh, you know, God grant, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Well, there are things in our life that we have uh, a choice over and there are things that are not up to us. And uh, we need to, 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 to learn to discern between these two and, um, and then make the choices that we do have wh- where we do have them. Now, the thing about choices is that all of us have choices and quite literally at every moment in our life. But here is the thing about choices that we mostly fail to exercise them. Why? Because most of the choices that we have in life are what I've come to call rhetorical choices. You know, what are rhetorical choices? It's like a rhetorical question. You know, if uh, when, when we ask our kids, 
you know, do you want, uh, you know, daddy to be upset? It's a rhetorical question. Of, of course, you know, no child would say, yes, please. Um, and in the same way, we have rhetorical choices in life. For instance, if I ask you, Yael, um, do you want to take the good things in your life for granted? Or do you want to appreciate the good things in your life? I mean, you and everyone in the world would, of course, of course, I want to appreciate. I don't want to take for granted the people in my life, the people I love or the things that I have. Yeah, I want to appreciate them. And yet, and yet, most people, most of the time, take the good in their life for granted. So we have a rhetorical choice, and yet we fail to choose appropriately. We fail to choose in the way that would best serve us and others. Similar, you know, here is another uh, uh, rhetorical choice. You know, do you want to, um, you know, sit down or, or, or stand with your shoulder stooped or do you want to stand up straight? Well, you know, everyone will say, yeah, of course I want to stand up straight because we know what that communicates. And yet so many people, so much of the time are stooped over so we have rhetorical choices throughout our life. And the question is, how do we make them? How do we choose appropriately? And the answer is, and this, this, is, where, um, um, this is where the whole science of choice becomes really important and relevant. We have to create reminders in our lives to help us choose more wisely. The reminders can come in the form of rituals. For example, I have a ritual every night before going to bed. I think about and, and imagine the things for which I'm grateful. I wake up every morning, it's a ritual, and I think about what are the things that I'm looking forward to during the day. You know, I have rituals around exercise because we all know that exercise is important, and yet not enough people uh, are exercising cons consistently. So we need reminders around, around that. Um, we need, um, so other forms of reminders can be using our smartphone. You know, if, even reminders such as, you know, be kind, be nice. Yeah, of course, we all want to be nice and kind um, rather than harsh and impatient. We sometimes need to be reminded of it, especially when we're under uh, time pressure. So why not create a reminder that we read every morning about kindness or that, you know, flashes on our screen? every once in a while, or have, you know, a, a picture on our wall, with, you know, with, which I do of people who remind us to be kind or generous or, or playful or whatever it is, whatever rhetorical choice it is that we want to make more often. Well, I loved your example in the book too, that you sometimes put a bracelet around your wrist as a reminder. And I was just curious, are you wearing a bracelet to remind you of anything? Or are you, are you sort of focusing on building a habit at this point? Yeah, no, at this point, I'm not wearing a bracelet, even though I did wear it until uh, two and a half, three, three weeks ago. And it's always, uh, well, it's not always something different, but, but it's, it's um, around things that I'm working on at a particular time. So for instance, the, you know, it could be about being, you know, more patient or, or, or kind. It could be around being more present if I feel like I'm distracted. Uh, it could be about, uh, uh, providing positive feedback, you know, in, in, in the workplace, um, whatever it is, but wearing a bracelet is, um, is one of the uh, key reminders. Yeah. That, that so I like use. embedding these sort of cues into your environment helps you to 
really sustain some of those practices that are happiness building. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. So on that front, I actually have another question that's related to some of the work that I do on working parenthood. So I'm working on a book that is sort of a guide for building more happiness in working parent life. And one of the challenges is, of course, and and I think this is not just working parents, but people that have a number of demanding roles, whatever they may be, is finding the time and the energy. And so these rhetorical questions are really easy to sort of default to the non-action because we're already feeling so overwhelmed with all of the demands of life. So what do you tell people who truly feel they don't have a spare minute or a spare ounce of energy to build greater practices by by using these kinds of cues to remind them to do something more? In other words, there's always a great irony when you counsel a a patient or a client to, to create a few minutes to just pause. And they say, I just don't have those minutes to meditate or to even take a breath. There's too many things. And really, if you tell me to do one more thing, it's just one more thing I'm going to feel guilty that I'm not doing. And so you sort of get to this stuck point in building happiness with a lot of people who are feeling that level of overwhelm, which is, in all honesty, many of us. Yeah, look, um, unfortunately, you know, we have uh, 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, and that's uh, that's immutable. Um, and the question is, how do, how do we fit in more? And I think a more important question is, uh, uh, how do we do less? You know, in our modern world, we have the, uh, the luxury of choice. And, uh, you know, Barry Schwartz talks about it in his uh, book and in his, uh, you know, lectures on the tyranny of choice, mm. where we have so many choices. And it's a wonderful thing on the one hand, but on the other hand, it also, um, it also hurts us. Um, because, because it means that we have to say no more often. Um, so, you know, I faced the, the, the very challenge that you're describing. First of all, I, I still do, but I remember it became real pronounced for me when uh, our first child was born, David. And until, until the time he was born, I was doing pretty okay in terms of uh, time management, meaning, you know, I was uh, working uh, many hours a day. You know, I was also, uh, you know, spending a lot of time with my initially girlfriend, then uh, my wife, Tammy, and we were seeing friends, you know, we were, we were living the life. And then suddenly comes this, you know, little one who um, I want to dedicate so much time, uh, time to, I want to, you know, spend time with, but then there is, you know, when I'm at work, I'm feeling guilty over not being with him. And when I'm with him, you know, I know that I'm not getting enough work done or spending enough time with my partner or we're not seeing friends. And it all became a whole, you know, mess um, of, uh, you know, maybe the dominant emotion being, uh, you know, guilt and frustration. Um, and, um, and, and I decided to sit down and, and, and write about it. You know, I often, when, when, when I face issues, I, you know, I write in my journal and I wrote about it and I said, okay, so what do I want to do in my life? And I made a list of, you know, you know, the time I want to spend with my friends and the time I want to spend with uh, my wife and the time I want to spend with David and then the time I want to spend working and exercising. And when I edit it all up, 
it um, it added to you know over forty eight hours in a day because <laughs> you know sleep is important too. Yeah. And uh, you know it just it just didn't work out. It just didn't it, it didn't make sense. <laughs> the math it didn't add did up. not work. <laughs> it did not work. And you know and and, and I studied computer science. You know I can do math. <laughs> you can do simple <laughs> arithmetic. But, but I couldn't make that equation work. <laughs> Whatever I tried, no matter the code that I wrote. <laughs> And um, so, so what I did then is I created a, you know, a second list next to the list. The first list I called it my, you know, my perfect list. Um, the second list I called my optimal list. Now, optimal means best given the um, constraints of reality. That's the definition of optimal, best given the constraints of reality. So the one was, you know, perfect. The other was optimal or the one was ideal. The other was good enough. And in the good enough uh, list, I wrote all the things that I want to do, but what would be good enough? Yeah. So, you know, in a perfect world, I would do yoga two hours a day plus exercise, you know, 90 minutes. That's in a perfect world. In a good enough world, you know, I'd work out three times a week, you know, 40 minutes each time and then do yoga three times a week. Good enough. Seeing my friends, you know, my, my wife and I, we love hanging out with, with, with friends, with family. We would do it just about every day. Perfect world. In a good enough, optimal world, you know, we would see our friends, you know, religiously once a week. And if we have more time, you know, that's, that, that, that's great. And on and on with work. Ideally, I would work 14 hours a day. I love my work. But, you know, then I wouldn't get to see friends, family or, or you know, anyone. So, you know, what's good enough? Well, good enough is between six to eight hours a day and on and on for each, uh, you know, time with my kid, time with my wife. Um, and once I wrote that down, once it was, you know, you know, black on white, it became clearer to me what kind of life I could live. It became very clear that I couldn't live the perfect life, but it also became clear that I could live the optimal life or a good enough life. And good enough really is good enough. And this is something, again, you know, you speaking earlier about the aha moments, you know, it sounds trivial, you know, a a tautology, but embracing and accepting the fact that good enough is good enough um, is, um, is important. But to create this good enough list, we have to prioritize means, meaning we have to say no. Yes. too many things, which is easier said than done. Yeah, the saying no is hard. And I, I j- also, as I was reading, so in your book, Being Happy, you talk a lot about this perfectionist versus optimalist separation. And that really does harken back to Barry Schwartz's work on the paradox of choice with people who want to be maximizers in their choice versus satisficers. But this is more building a happier life. So you're sort of taking this idea of, figuring out like what for you is a good enough life given your constraints and focusing on that versus some I- fantasy idea because, you know, real life is lived. We can fantasize all we want, but if, if it's impossible to bring it into reality, then we're going to feel constantly frustrated. So I love some of those exercises of actually putting pen to paper and, and really thinking through what is most important to you. And Barry Schwartz's you know, research really mimics what you're talking about, which is that even though so maximizers who try to get the perfect outcome versus satisficers who are aiming for the good enough, and that satisficers are much happier and do better over time 
even in their performance. And that's the irony. And you talk about that too. And I, I sort of am curious what your thoughts are on sort of the performance side of things. Right. So, you know, the, the, the misconception that many people have about uh, giving up perfectionism is that it means giving up ambition or hard work and so forth. But, you know, when we talk about perfectionism, it's important to break down this concept into its different elements. And the different elements of perfectionism are that there is uh, what psychologists call maladaptive perfectionism as well as adaptive perfectionism. So maladaptive perfectionism is uh, an obsession with um, um, with uh, perfect success or with failure. It's the rejection of any painful emotions because that's a deviation from the straight and narrow. It's an inability to appreciate because when you appreciate, you know, you're in danger of, uh, of stagnation. So this is the unhealthy, the maladaptive part of uh, perfectionism. The healthy parts of perfectionism is are things like, uh, you know, being ambitious, working hard, um, um, it's, uh, it's about, uh, being responsible. These are the, you know, the, the this is the upside yeah. of, uh, perfectionism. And you can, once you break down perfectionism, you can give up on the maladaptive and, uh, and embrace the adaptive. We can still be hard workers. We can still be ambitious. We can still be very responsible without being perfectionist, without being obsessed with the fear of failure without rejecting any and all painful emotions, while appreciating um, what we have, embracing the good. So, And when we do that, then our uh, hard work is much more sustainable. When we do that, we don't just uh, enjoy the journey more. We also enjoy a better outcome. Why? Because when we, when we increase levels of well-being, as I mentioned earlier, we're more creative, more productive, more engaged, um, and therefore, in the long term, perform better. Yeah, and it sort of harkens back to the kind of therapy that I and all of my co-host colleagues do, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And it really is always about coming back to your values, because even if you're tired or you're angry or you're even depressed, if you can connect into what matters to you, what you want to stand for, it helps you sort of push through the discomfort or, or sort of, you know, the dark periods, as you were saying. Um, and, you know, when you think about grit and that persistence, it's the, the equation for grit is passion plus persistence. And if you care very deeply, you're more likely to persist. And that is what leads to a better outcome. So I think that there's just so much science supporting that. Yes. And, and, you know, going back to acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a therapist, uh, as you know, but if I were a therapist, this is what I would be uh, practicing. And the reason is that, uh, as I always, you know, uh, tell my students, you know, what we do matters more than what we feel. Yes. Because, uh, you know, I can feel, you know, sadness, frustration, hatred, uh, envy, um, disappointment, anxiety. You know, these are emotions that we all feel at times. However, that doesn't mean that I need to act malevolently or that I need to give up. Um, for instance, you know, courage. What is courage? Courage is not about not having fear. Courage is about having fear and going ahead anyway. And paradoxically, it's when we reject the fear that the fear is more likely to control us. It's when we embrace the fear that we're more likely to have the choice of acting uh, you know, courageously or however we choose to act. So it's the action 
that matters more. When it comes to emotions, we simply accept them. Um, you know, I, I compare emotions to the law of gravity because the law of gravity simply is we don't judge it. We accept and embrace it. And if we can um, perceive emotions in the same uh, stoic accepting, embracing way that we perceive the law of gravity, that's a, a first and very important step towards fulfilling our potential. You know, it's when we first allow in unhappiness that we open ourselves up to happiness. Absolutely. And just as you were talking, I'm just sort of thinking about the research that comes out of Sonia Lubomirsky's lab. She talks about this sort of chart of like what contributes to happiness and it's 10% life circumstances. It's actually 50% genetics, but the remainder, that 40% is the intentional activity. What's so terrific about your work is that you offer really on the ground practices that people can do on a daily basis. And those sort of fall within the intentional activities that can build happiness. And 40% is quite a lot. 40% is a lot, and it can even be more. Um, because when uh, Sonny Lubomirsky and Ken Sheldon and others talk about the pie, they're talking about averages, meaning on average, if you aggregate all people, about 50% is determined by, by genes and early experiences. And that's a lot. Uh, 10%. Ex external circumstances and 40% uh, choices. Now, when it comes to the 10%, just like the 40 and the 50, these are averages. Because if you now go to a person who's living in a war zone, you know, you can be sure that their happiness is impacted by more than 10%. Or a person living in dire poverty, their external circumstances affect their lives much more than by just 10%. So it's average. And the question is, how can you increase or decrease the 40% of choices? And that's when we go back to um, the idea of mindful choices. Am I mindful of the choice that I have to appreciate rather than take for granted? Um, am I mindful of the choice that I have in terms of how I sit or the kind of work that I choose to do or how um, intentional I choose to be? when I spend time with, um, with friends and family. So these are all choices that we have. The question is, am I mindful of them? And the more mindful I am of the rhetorical choices that I have throughout my life, the larger that 40% part of the pie becomes. Yeah. I mean, every time you've said now twice, you know, the a comment about posture and, and then I remind myself, oh yeah, I should stand up straighter. And it also reminds me of, a study by Daniel Kahneman that I've heard you reference in some of your in some of your talks and, and in your writing as well, which is you know when parents are asked how they're feeling, they're often not that happy because they're so distracted in a hundred different directions. And I, as a parent, know that experience very well. But when I'm really deliberate about being with my kids, I'm far more likely. Right, it's not a guarantee, but I'm far more likely to have a really enjoyable time when I am really present and one-minded about my time with them. But it's really easy to drift away. Yes. So, you know, when Kahneman um, received the results of that study, what surprised him most was that parents don't particularly enjoy spending time with their children. And it's not that their children are not a meaningful part of their life, that, you know, for most of them, they are the most important part of their life. But it was rather that they, when, when they were with their children, they weren't really with their children, meaning 
as you pointed out, they were distracted, whether it's that phone call, whether it's that work and that they're doing, whether it's thinking about what they had to, what they should have done or need to do. Um, and it's very similar, you know, the, the, the analogy would be one of, you know, listening to music. If I listen to my favorite piece of music um, with my eyes closed and focused, um, that's wonderful. But if I listen to it and three other pieces simultaneously, it will be noise, cacophony. And if we can think about spending time with our children or, or partner or, or friends in the same way that we think about listening to a piece of music, and we do it discreetly on its own, then we can learn to much more enjoy these precious moments. Yeah. So before I let you go, I wanted to ask you something because you're clearly an avid reader. Choose the life you want has these short chapters about big topics and each you refer readers to more in-depth works. And it's clear that you're just very well-versed in philosophy. So I'm curious for you, what has been the most influential book that you've read in this really tumultuous past year? So in the tumultuous past year, I've actually gone back to many books that I've, uh, that, that I've read before. This has been uh, my focus because I think we don't spend enough time rereading, you know, it's, um, yes. um, just hearing an idea once or, or, or twice may not be enough. Um, that's why, for example, religions are structured around ritual and repetition and reminders, you know, what I call the three R's of change. So I've gone back to, um, to, to some of the books. Um, and um, right now, what I'm uh, rereading is uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which I also see as the founding document of the field of happiness studies. Um, before that, I reread Nathaniel Brandon's The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, which I think, uh, which is a book that, um, w w that started me off uh, in many ways in, in, in my field. Um, and, um, the book that I'm going to read next, I was just thinking about it this morning, or reread next is uh, Eckhart Tolle, the, the, the Power of Now. Awesome. Well, thank you for for those recommendations, because I, I hope that people take them as such. And I just want to say that I recommend any book by Tal because they are really life-changing and they will leave you not just with a new way to look at things, but a set of practices that really can help you to build a happier life. So I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me and, and using your very valuable time to share your wisdom on our platform. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Yael. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.